saw that last week. I, I talked about ending our study in Second Timothy today, but God's will, uh, God didn't speak to me, but apparently it's God's will that we'll finish our study next week. So next week, I think we'll conclude our study in Second Timothy. If you have, have your Bibles, please open to Second Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be studying verses 6 through 8 this morning. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. The Word of God says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. An English poet, Frederick Langbridge, wrote this. Two men look out to the same bars in prison. One sees the mud. The other sees the stars. Our dear friend, the Apostle Paul, is looking out from a prison cell, a dungeon in Rome. His face is marked by, with wrinkles from prolonged exposure to the sun. His hands are callous from his many years working as a tent maker. His body has many scars from being persecuted by the enemies of Christ. His clothes are covered with dirt and mud. These are all appropriate symbols of his life and ministry. These physical features of Paul are all because of the gospel, all because of God's love for him. Therefore, his love for God through the cross. And as Paul looks out of his prison cell and writes down his thoughts, we are surprised and encouraged to find that there is not a hint of bitterness in his heart. There is no sense of anger or anxiety or despair. He looks back upon his 30 plus years of gospel ministry and his heart is good. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this, Men have usually shown us what lies at the bottom of their heart when they have come to die. Often their last expiring expressions have been indicative of their entire character. Here before you in the last sentences of Paul is an epitome of his entire life and we find that he is trusting in the Savior. End quote. Here Paul, at the end of his life, is not filled with regret, not filled with uh, sorrow or disappointment. It's filled with joy. What does he see at the finish line? At the end of his life, what is his perspective? Uh, Three things Paul saw at the end of his life. These three points will guide our study this morning. First of all, he saw his current situation with steady resolve. Paul saw his current situation with steady resolve. Secondly, he looked back with calm satisfaction. And then thirdly, he looked forward with sweet assurance. He looked forward with sweet assurance. Let's look at the first point. Verse 6, he saw his current situation with steady resolve. What was his situation? I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. 
The first word in verse 6 tells us that this is the reason for Paul's command to Timothy in verse 5. Paul charged Timothy to always be sober-minded, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Why? Because already Paul's life was coming to an end. His life was being poured out as a drink offering. Paul rightly viewed his life as an offering to God. He viewed rightly that his life, his goals, his ambitions, his strength, his possessions, all of it belonged to God and was to be spent for God, was to be exhausted for his glory, for his purposes, because he was a blood-bought man. Because God ransomed him. God redeemed him. God saved him. Therefore, he belonged to God and was most appropriate to view his life as an offering to God as well. To be spent and poured out to God. And that is a perspective that not just Paul had, but we all should have. Romans 12.1 In view of God's mercies, in light of the cross, in light of the gospel of our Savior, in light of what God has done for us, what is our response? To present our bodies as living sacrifices, as spiritual worship to God. We are offerings to the Lord. We are to be poured out in His service. And it is uh, interesting to know that Paul views himself in a specific kind of offering. He calls himself, his life, a drink offering. He had alluded to this before in Philippians 1.27 when he said, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. This drink offering was, was, was uh, well understood by the Jewish people at the time of this writing. In all sacrifices commissioned by God, whether it was a goat, lamb, or a bull, they're all burnt offerings, uh, offerings made to God. Many times, the one offer, giving the offering would pour a little bit of wine or oil on top of the offering that is burning on an open flame. It was his symbol of offering to God as a, as a thanksgiving for gratitude to God's favor upon his or her life. As he would pour that drink offering on the burning animal, Immediately, it would evaporate on this uh, burning animal and it would cause a fragrant aroma that would be pleasing to everyone gathered there. That was, that was Paul's view of his life. He was not the offering. The offering was Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God slain on our behalf to take away the sins of the world. For Paul, his life, the whole of it, all of his ministry, all of his work was just, just but a few drops poured on the offering of Christ to evaporate immediately, leaving a, a fragrant aroma that was dissipating, but for that moment was pleasing to God. That's how he considered his life, and that's how we are to consider our lives. What a perspective. We are but uh, small drink offerings, eh? like the cups that we get for communion. A little too small, you know? We should maybe get a little, little bit bigger. That's all we are. 
in our delusions of grandeur, we think we are doing so much for God. Our lives are so significant. What we are doing for the cause of Christ is so weighty. That is not the proper perspective. The significant sacrifice, the true sacrifice is Jesus on the cross. The most that we ever do can, can say is we're but a drink offering that evaporates and leaves a fleeting yet fragrant aroma that is pleasing to God. He says he's already being poured out as a drink offering, just a few drops left. And he says, the time of my departure has come. The Greek, the Greek word departure is from analusis. It has a variety of meanings. William Barclay in his commentary explains four of those meanings, each of which gives a vivid picture of the way in which the apostle viewed his last days. First of all, it is the word for unyoking an animal from the shafts of a cart or a plow. So for Paul, death meant being released from work, being released from labor. Death meant ceasing from work and going to Christ to rest with him forever. Secondly, it is the word for loosening bonds or fetters like handcuffs or any kind of shackles. For Paul, death, this departure was freedom. It was to be liberated from being bound to this flesh, this flesh that's tainted and corrupted by sin. Thirdly, it is the word for loosening the ropes of a tent. It's the idea of breaking camp. We're here temporarily. We are pilgrims. We have not established ourselves here in a permanent home. We have just pitched tents temporarily, and it's time to loosen the ropes, break camp, because we're moving on. Fourthly, it is the word for loosening the mooring ropes of a ship. When a ship was docked in a bay, they would anchor that ship and tie it to the, uh, to the dock. And this word, analupsis, is the word picture of letting go of those ropes so that the boat might go into deep waters. That was Paul's picture here. He is now journeying to the deep waters of God's grace. This time of departure had come for Paul. This is important for us, for us to consider this, because Paul, this time of departure didn't sneak up on him. It didn't catch him by surprise. It didn't happen without him being aware. He knew this time would come, this time when he would be loosened, this time when he would break camp, time when he would go into deep water. So he lived his life backwards. Knowing that the time of departure would be there, he lived his life backwards in view of that end. Therefore, he didn't waste his life. He didn't throw it away. He didn't get caught up in distractions. He lived his life according to biblical values and priorities because he knew that this time of departure will come and it cannot be changed. Now, the time of our departure is set in stone in God's sovereignty. This is not an excuse for us to do whatever we want, eat whatever we want, not exercise and such, right? That's not a right response. But biblically, no matter what we do, we can't add a single hour to our life. No matter what we do, we can't take away a single life. That time of departure is set in stone. So for Paul, knowing this, he lived his life backwards. And it's important for us. I think 
especially because so many of you uh, are, are young. Um, I no longer count myself in that category. Uh, last Sunday playing basketball was a, a cold, cold awakening to the reality that I am no longer 27. When I play ball, I, still, I, I thought I was always 27 playing ball, but last week I realized I'm 40 years old and uh, my body won't move like I wanted to. For those of you that are still in that category of being, of being young, um, this is important for you. Just like Ecclesiastes 7.2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why is it better? Why is it better to go to a funeral? Why is it good to hear a man, his last words before his death, before his departure? Because Psalm 90 verse 12, it'll cause us to number our days rightly. It'll sober us. It'll remind us that we do not, we will not live forever. That this time of departure is set in stone and one day we will stand before the Lord and give an account. Therefore, we need to live our lives backwards in light of our future destiny before our sovereign Lord. For Paul, there was no regret. There was no sense of uh, worldly sorrow, grieving because he wasted his life. He understands his life is coming to an end and there is this calm assurance, this steady resolve in his heart. So he looks at his current situation and then he looks back with contented satisfaction, joyful satisfaction. He employs three metaphors to summarize his 30 plus years in gospel ministry. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Literally in the Greek, uh, it is the good fight I have fought, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept, all in perfect tense, done once and for all. It tells us you get one shot at this fight. You get one shot at this race. No mulligans, no do-overs, no repeat deletes. One shot and it's over. At the end of his life, he says, I fought the good fight. The race I finished. The faith I have kept. Let's look at these one. So each, each one separately. The first one is, I have fought the good fight. Uh, fought is the Greek verb, agonizomai. And the fight is the noun, agona, from where we get the word agony. Agonizing. Paul viewed the Christian life, the whole of it, as one long, drawn-out war, battle, conflict, struggle. This was seen in the life of Christ. His life was one long, long, drawn-out war. From the moment of his birth, people tried to kill him. People were after his life. Before he was even born, they wanted his blood. And when he was on this earth, Everywhere he, he faced, he faced conflict, he faced struggle, he faced persecution and trials. But this was not a physical war. Remember in, in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18, when Peter drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, and Christ said to Peter, away with that sword. My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not from this world. 
the conflict, the fight, the battle that Christ and Paul is talking about is a spiritual conflict. It's a spiritual battle, spiritual war, where it is fought in the heart of man, in the spiritual realm, in the inner realm, where men fight against God's grace. Men hate God's love, God's mercy, and they try to usurp the message of God's gospel by establishing their own righteousness and and, and setting their own lives in the fight with the fires of hell and leading others to the course of life where their whole lives are set on fire by the fires of hell. And so doing our Lord was tacked in all manner of evil ways, but he always responded with humility and gentleness, with meek courage, never seen in the world. They hated him all the more for it. It was not enough for them to persecute Jesus. They murdered him on the cross. And after he even died, that was not enough. Their hatred was so overflowing that they went after the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul was one such a man. 1 Timothy 1.13, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. 1 Corinthians 15.9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1.13, how I persecuted the church of God and violently I tried to destroy God's church because of his, of his vehement hatred of the gospel. God saved him and now he was on the receiving end of this very same persecution. So the Christian life the whole of it is rightly called a fight. Paul qualifies it here, though, as the good fight. The Greek word kalos, when we get kaleidoscope, it's beautiful. It's good, it's noble, it's praiseworthy. We're going to be careful here, though. Read this carefully. He's not saying, I fought a good fight. Because if he was saying that, he'd be boasting. right? He'd be exalting himself. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, I fought the good fight. For example, last week we played a, had a basketball tournament in the church. And if I were to tell you, I played a good game, first of all, I'll be telling you a lie. <laughs> because I went like one for 30 last week. And a uh, horrible day. And then secondly, I'd be boasting. But if I told you, I played in the game. It's a fact. There's no boasting there. If we had kept records of the players that played in that game, my name would be on that record because I played in the game. I lost the game for our team, but regardless, I was, I was in the game. I played, and that's a fact. I, I, I played in the game. Paul is, does not say here, I fought a good fight. It's, there's nothing in here about how well he fought or how poorly he fought. All he's saying is the good fight I have fought. I fought the good fight. The contrast is, Instead of the, the, the dumb fights that are out there, the stupid fights, idiotic, pointless fights that are here in this world, all around us, calling us to be engaged in it, Paul said, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with these fruitless fights. The fight I fought was the good fight, the good fight of the faith, 1 Timothy 6.12. What is this good fight of the faith? There are three components summarizing of this, of this good fight. First of all, it's the fight, the struggle, the labor that we experience when we, when we care for other Christians. 
when we seek to serve and love and care and shepherd and counsel and rebuke and correct and preach and teach fellow believers out of love, the word that describes that work is, is struggle, it's conflict, it's fight. Because we're fighting our own selfishness and our own sinfulness and our pride. And we're, and we're trying to endeavor sinners to grow in Christ's likeness. So the, the, what describes that is conflict. It's not easy. It's difficult. So when Paul often described this ministry, he described it as toil, as labor. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone complete, mature in Christ. For this I toil. For this I agonize. Struggling with all his energy, which works powerfully within me. Colossians 2, 1. I want you to know how, a, how great a struggle I have for you. That your hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Colossians 4. Paul talks about Epaphras. How he is always struggling for the Colossian church in his prayers. So prayer, intercessory prayer is conflict. It is war. It is work. It is labor. So if you are doing that, if your heart is burdened, right, not with things in this world, not with fruitless endeavors that are always in this world, but your heart is burdened because you love a Christian and what you want for that believer is Christ-likeness, what you want for that believer is a spiritual revival and renewal where they understand the gospel of grace, so they will walk in the spirit, the glory of God. And so you're praying for that person. You're going to that person. You take your plank out of your own eye and you take that the little, little dust in the other person's eye and you help and encourage them and you're burdening your heart. You are fighting the good fight. Nothing about whether you're doing it well or not, but you're engaged. Your name is on the roster. Secondly, the fight is enduring suffering, enduring evil, because you're standing for the name of Christ. Suffering, experiencing conflict, because you're proclaiming the the light of the gospel in this darkened world. We experienced this. Some of you were at David and Jamie's wedding yesterday, and if you know their testimonies, they come from non-Christian background. And we're praying for Dan because it it is so hard, so challenging to go to a hostile environment to proclaim the gospel in the wedding, in a, in a wedding, when parents and family and friends are are not only they're antagonistic to the gospel, they hate the gospel message. And Dan did a wonderful job yesterday, graciously, hur- humbly, but firmly, courageously proclaiming this gospel of grace. And David did a wonderful job giving his testimony, how God saved him out of Roman Catholicism. And Jamie, how he, she started an anti-Christian club at UCLA, raised as a Buddhist, and yet God saved her. They're listening to this testimony, listening to Dan preach. You could, you could cut the atmosphere with a knife because you could sense the hostility. You could sense the spiritual conflict. And we're praying for Dan's heart because we know that's not easy. There is a conflict. There is antagonism. There is negative response when we proclaim the gospel of Christ. And that is part of the, that, that is the good fight. 
Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. What is that conflict? When Paul would preach, he would be persecuted. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. You, you, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated, as you know. We have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And that is the reality. If you're waiting for that perfect opportunity to proclaim the conflict, you're waiting for that perfect opportunity to proclaim the gospel without conflict, without a negative response, where everything's peace and easy and, and, and positive, you will never preach the gospel. That opportunity will never come. It is in the midst of conflict, in the midst of a firestorm, we are to hold high the cross of Christ and hold out the word of Christ to our family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. If you're engaged in that, you're engaged in the good fight. Thirdly, this is the hardest fight. The, the hardest battle is not in the mission field. It's not in the church and ministry. The hardest battle is battling in our own hearts fighting sin in our own flesh. This internal war that wages in our hearts against our sin in the flesh. John Owen said, Pastor John Owen, there is an exceeding efficacy and power in the remainder of indwelling sin in believers. Again, let me hear this out. There is an exceeding efficacy and power in the remainder of indwelling sin in believers with a constant inclination and working toward evil. And that's Christians. In our flesh, there is exceedingly great power in our flesh working toward evil. That is why Paul told Colossians, in Colossians 3.5, put to death what is earthly in you. Mortify it. Don't try to coexist with it. Don't sign a treaty with your flesh. Don't try to uh, be friends with sin in, the, in, in your flesh. Only one response is to mortify, is to kill it, because be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin has only one agenda, to kill faith, to shipwreck our faith, to lead us astray. So our response must be war. War. Mortify to fight. This means that we are called to learn the art of battle, which includes understanding the nature of sin that dwells within us, understand the complexity of the human heart and how deceptive our hearts are, and utmost, know and understand and believe the goodness and provision of God in the gospel. We are to have this habitual Continual striving to weaken sin through spiritual warfare. But how do we do this? You know, how do we mortify sin that's that's in us? If sin is in someone else, we can do something. We could avoid that person, right? If it's sin in the world, we can, you know, close the shutters and lock the doors and keep sin out. But sin is inside of us. How do we mortify sin that's living inside of us? Some of you are trying to mortify sin by making decisions, loading your consciences with guilt, committing yourself all the more to spiritual disciplines, thinking in this way you will conquer sin, not knowing this is the deception of the enemy. 
You're playing into his hands. You resort to your own strength, your own willpower, your own discipline to fight sin. You're actually aiding the enemy. Your flesh is getting stronger. You're going away from Christ. This is not how we mortify sin. That's how religious people mortify sin. That's what religions say. That is not the gospel way. I've been realizing recently that the biggest blind spot in my life is my self-dependence, is my self-reliance, is my high view of myself. And because of that, I, I, I often seek to fight sin, fight temptation on my own strength, instead of by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is our relationship with the Holy Spirit? Years ago, we had a guest speaker, loved this brother, nothing but the highest respect and, and estimation in my heart for this man. He has forgotten more about the Bible than I ever learned. So in no way, you know, I'm just disagreeing with him. But just at this one point, I think he was, he was, he is now, I disagree with him. He was talking about the Holy Spirit in our relationship with him. And if you were there, you remember he called up Joe Jung. Uh, it's a visual picture of the relationship between a Christian and the Holy Spirit. It's a, a picture that I will never forget. It's a good thing and a bad thing. I will never forget this picture. And so he was the Holy Spirit, and Joe Jung was Joe Jung. And they were locked in arm and walking together. And he said, walking by the Holy Spirit is this. We walk with the Holy Spirit side by side, locked in arms, and we walk, you know, like those uh, band people or like North Korean soldiers, right? They, you know, their, their arms and their feet are like, in, you know, in, in sync. And that's walking by the Holy Spirit. And that's how I view my relationship with the Holy Spirit all these years. And then I'm confronted that my greatest blind spot is my self-reliance. And I'm coming to see, but it's, it's not the opposite. It's not... You know, Paul Pierce being you know, pushed in a wheelchair in 2008 uh, championship, right? So where the Holy Spirit pushes us and we do nothing, and like he does everything, let go and let God. That's not Paul, that picture of Paul Pierce. The picture is Andrew Bynum and DJ Mbenga, right? And he got a knee injury. He can't stand on it. He can't support his own weight. So Mbenga is bigger, a little bit bigger, comes alongside of him and helps him to the locker room. And with every step, Bynum is leaning on DJ. Right? He takes the step, but he has to lean and depend on his friend. That's the visual picture, the spiritual reality of our hearts. That walking in the Spirit is not, I have this residual, independent, righteousness, morality, and spiritual strength where I walk cooperating with the Holy Spirit. No, I am weak. I am absolutely dependent desperate for Christ and His Spirit. And the faith that I have, it's given to me by grace, by God. The faith that I exercise to take that step, I'm able to take because I depend on the Holy Spirit. And as I depend on the Holy Spirit, He's my comforter. He's my paraclete. He's my helper. He's the one that leads and guides you and I. Where? Where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Not to the law. Not to ourselves. He leads us to the cross telling us that the cross is the hope for our salvation and our Christian lives. And as I do so, I'm empowered by, by the Holy Spirit to fight sin, to care for others. Acts 1.8, proclaim the gospel to the world. How do we mortify sin? It is not in our own strength. It is through the Holy Spirit. 
trusting in him, trusting in the gospel. And then he will do the work, right? We water, we sow, but God causes growth. Our growth is God's responsibility. Let him take care of that. Our responsibility is to believe. John 3, 6.29, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. That is our responsibility. God's responsibility is to change our hearts, transform us, bear fr- causing us to bear fruit of the Holy Spirit. We would just trust in Christ, depend on the Holy Spirit. He will, he will do that work. And the good fight will be on the roster, engaged in it. Paul, at the end of his life, said, I have fought the good fight. Secondly, he says, I have finished the race. Well, the Greek word race is uh, dramas. It's, it's, the, it's, it's course. Literally, it's, it's a race, but the idea is course, like a marathon course. So what Paul is saying is, again, not I won the race. right? I did better than, you know, I beat you, Timothy. I'm better than Titus. Uh, Peter, you know, he's kind of out of, he's, he's kind of, he's out of shape. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I, I finished this course that God has given to me. What was the course marked out for Paul? Acts 20, 24. It was for him to be an apostle of God, for him to be preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and to suffer for his name. That was a message, right, that, that Barnabas took to Paul when he got saved. You're going to suffer for the name of Christ. That was a course marked out for him. And he was faithful. Gospel, the Gentiles, apostle of God, and he suffered for the gospel. That's his course. That's not my course, and that's not your course. Listen to me carefully. Every single one of you, has a different course marked out for you by God. And when you, the way you lose the way, the way you go astray is by comparing yourselves with others, by competing with one another, by being envy or jealous, or by being judgmental and feeling superior. When we are all running a different course marked out for us. This is illustrated in... uh, Peter's last interchange with Christ. Now, how does Peter do this? Man, he has that foot and mouth disease. All goes well. And he says that dumb thing at the end. And like he embarrasses himself. Right? We all wish. Even Christ, Peter, you're doing so well. You should have just put a period and just turned away. It would have been good. Peter was talking to, Christ was talking to Peter. And, and do you love me? I love, you know, you know I love you. That exchange in John 21. A final time, do you Phileo me, yes, Lord, I, I love you. Feed my sheep. And Jesus said, when you were young, you dressed yourself. When you're older, someone else would dress you. Indicating the kind of death through which Peter would glorify God. John 21, last chapter of the Gospel of John. So this was Christ prophesying, Peter, you ran away. Right? When I was being tortured and persecuted going to the cross, you ran away. But because you're humble, and now you acknowledge you don't have agape love for me, you have phileo love for me, you have a humble love, a broken heart, one day you will give your life for, the, for, for, for Jesus Christ, for me. When you dress yourself, and when, when you're older, you're, someone else will dress you, meaning you'll be crucified upside down on the cross. That's how he, he glorified God. He was martyred for the faith. Stop right there. Close the gospel. Great. What, what a glorious ending. But what does Peter do? 
He hears that and he looks at John. And what does Peter ask? Lord, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And what did Jesus say? Peter, why don't you stop right here? <laughs> why do you have to ask the question? What is, what, what is his life to you? What is he to you? You follow me. Each Christian has a different course marked out for him or her. Right. So, some of you will never, have never had a health issue in your whole life. Right. And you will, know, you will not know what it is to be ill. But whatever it is, it's always a faith issue, right? So because of that, you're proud, right? Because you're self-dependent, right? You're, you're, judge, you're judgmental towards others who are weak. Others, you have health issues, right? Therefore, it's a faith, faith issue. You, you despair of God, right? You, you question God. You judge others. You're envious of others. Some of you will be very prosperous. You know, this world tells us you can be whatever you want. That's not true. God makes some rich. God makes others poor. Some of you live in Newport Beach, right? Some of us live in Tustin, right? That's God's sovereign will, right? That's a different course marked out for us. Some of you will work 60 hours a week, right? In a cubicle, grinding out numbers day in and day out. Some of you will barely work. Like you own an Italian ice store, right? And you barely work. <laughs> what is this guy doing, right? I've never seen him working. God loves that guy, right? He's got a different course of life marked out for him. Some of you will be missionaries, preachers, leading millions to Christ. Some of you will be an average pastor serving in a small congregation here in Garden Grove. Some of you will be working behind the scenes in ministry. Some of you... We'll be with, with, with a kid all day long, changing diapers, right? feeding him, and then seeing him throw up that what you just fed him, and feeding him again, and seeing him throw up what you just fed him. And the whole day, that's all you have done. Right? The issue is your faith issue. Your course marked out for you. Right? You're, you're trusting in God and being faithful to what God has given to you. And you can see at the end, I have finished, I have fulfilled life that God has given to me. The issue is faith. For Paul, the course marked out for him, he ran it. Right? It's not about he ran well, he ran poorly, he finished it. His name was on the roster. Likewise, is your name on the roster? Are you always trying to live someone else's life? Right? You're always wanting to live someone else's life. And in so doing, you're not living your life for the glory of God. You're engaged in unbelief at the life that God has given to you, and you refuse to run, you're unhappy with the life that God has given to you, you refuse to run it. And in so doing, you will not finish your course. Thirdly, Paul said, I kept the faith. It is objective faith. It is dugged fight. He's not saying, I, I still believe. The faith, once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 1, 3. The faith, meaning the summary of the gospel uh, that was entrusted to Paul. 1 Timothy 1.11, he was entrusted with the God, glorious gospel, the blessed God. 2 Timothy 1.10, the gospel which I was entrusted and he's able to guard until that day. He did not contaminate it. He did not compromise it. He did not corrupt it in any way. Though he was accused of being a libertine, though he was accused of being a legalist, he sought to please God alone and he kept the gospel pure, 
and true. And he believed it to the end. And he passed it on faithfully to Timothy, who passed it on to us, telling us what is most important for us is getting the gospel right. For us, we need to understand the gospel of the scriptures and believe it and hold to it, just like the song we sang, just as the first moment we got saved, that glorious start of the gospel, to have that clear in our sight. That is what Paul kept to the end. So he saw his current situation with steady resolve. He looked back with calm satisfaction. He looked forward with sweet assurance. Verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all, to all who have loved his appearing. When an athlete wins a race for a fight, he looks forward to his trophy or reward. Similarly, Paul anticipated his eternal reward for finishing his spiritual race. The Greek verb translated laid up here speaks of safely storing away, deposited, kept, Safely, Paul knew that his reward was kept in heaven for him. The reward was a wreath, a stephanos, not a crown, like a kingly crown, like a diadem, but a stephanos, a wreath that was given to a victor of a race or a fight. But this stephanos is tikayasune, is stephanos of righteousness. The question is, is it, is it a crown because of Paul's righteousness? Or is righteousness describing the crown? It is the second. God is not rewarding Paul for his righteous life. God is giving Paul righteousness, which is symbolized by this crown as a gift to him because Paul loved Jesus while he was on this earth. James called it the crown of life, James 1.12. 1 Peter 5, 4, Peter called it the unfading crown of glory. And he did not receive this crown because he ran well, he fought well, and he kept the faith well. That would be works righteousness. No. He says, not only to me, but to all. He doesn't say, if you, run a good, if you fight a good fight, or if you're not lazy, if you run well, if you keep on doing works of obedience, then you will be, receive this crown of righteousness. That's not what it says. He says, not only to me, but everyone who have loved Jesus and who have loved his appearing will be given this righteousness. What is this dikaiosune? It is what, if you hunger and thirst for this, Matthew 5, 6, you are blessed. If you are seeking an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, you look inside of yourself and you say, I'm a sinner. I have nothing worthy of Christ, nothing moral, nothing good. I'm, a, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm a sinner. Nothing more, nothing less. And I am seeking an alien righteousness, a foreign goodness. I hunger and thirst for it. You are blessed. And this is when you will receive it in heaven, imputed to us by Christ through faith. We taste a bit of this, inaugurated when we are saved, but it is fulfilled before God in heaven. This righteousness, this gift is given to those who have loved him. Meaning those who, the Greek word is agape here. Who have loved Jesus, loved his appearing. That is so significant because you can do all these other things without loving Jesus. You can fight the Christian fight all for yourself because you love yourself. 
You could run this race to look good in front of others. You could seek to keep the faith, keep the gospel doctrinally pure to boast before man. If you do that, no kind of righteousness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ will say, away from me, you worker of iniquity. Proverbs 20 says, the Lord weighs the heart. He is the heart searcher. And God sees right through you and he sees why you are doing all these things and you weren't doing it because you loved him. You were doing it because you loved yourself and your your self-exaltation and self-glory and Jesus way away from you workers of iniquity. But if you did this because you loved him and you loved his appearing, then you'll receive the kind of righteousness. How can we love God? We can't. It is a fruit of Fruit of the Holy Spirit is fruit of faith in Christ. It is by trusting in Christ. And if we trust in Christ, we believe in the gospel, the first fruit that God produces in you is love. Is love for God. The greatest mark of a true believer is his or her love for God. This is the distinguishing mark between true Christians and false Christians. False Christians have no love for God. No true love for God. True Christians love God. Philippians 3, 18-20 is talking about these false teachers. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await our Savior, Christ Jesus. So for a Christian, that's the question for you. Right now, do you love God? It's not about, are you fighting the fight? It's not about, are you running the race? It's not about, how pure is your theology? Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Right? You know, we, we, we love our spouse, but do you love God more? We love our children. Do you love Jesus more? Friends are a gift from the Lord, but do you love Jesus more? We need a house, we need a car to get to work, but do you love Jesus more? Do you long for his return? Do you orient your life? Is your heart set on Christ and on that day when he will be reality and we shall see him as he is? Do you live for that crown of righteousness and hunger and thirst for it? Or do you hunger and thirst for some other earthly crown? May you not wait to the end of your life and look back and have that constitutional regret that I, I, I was engaged in a stupid fight, a pointless fight. I ran the wrong race. I don't have, I don't have the I didn't have the gospel. And so you had this regret because you wasted your life. And maybe perhaps even you'll waste your eternity because you never believed in Christ. May it be you see eternity and you live your life backwards and so gripped 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his, his love and grace. It will cause you to love him and long for him and that Christ will produce a life that is reflective of this love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now the praise team come and I want to just after this prayer respond in song. Lord, we um, Lord, we acknowledge how short-sighted we are. We acknowledge, oh God, that our hearts are set on earthly things and we forget that there is a day set for us, the day of our departure where we will indeed be leave the, uh, the harbor of this earth and set out to the deep waters of grace to be with you. As we consider that day, O oh God, grant us to be sober-minded. Grant us, O oh God, to exercise faith and through that faith see the beauty of Christ. And so doing, producing us deep abiding and pouring love for him and for his return. And that, pray, that would radically reorient, reorient our, our heart values, our priorities, our decisions. Uh, so that on that day when we come to the end of our lives, when the final chapter of our, our book is written, you'll be able to say, and look at our current situation with steady resolve, we'll be able to look back on our lives and have a calm assurance and look forward to being with you in your presence forever. Lord, we trust you. We, we believe and pray that you will do it. In Jesus' name we pray.